I'm now pleased to introduce our speaker, independent writer and art historian Avis Berman, has written extensively on painting, sculpture, photography, design, and museum history. She's the author of Rebels on 8th Street, Juliana Force and the Whitney Museum of American Art, James McNeil Whistler, and Edward Hopper's New York. She co-authored and edited Catherine Koo's memory, My Love Affair with Modern Art, Behind the Scenes with a Legendary Curator. Her latest book, which came out in May, is Roy Lichtenstein, The Impossible Collection. Her articles and reviews have appeared in numerous magazines and newspapers, from the New York Times to Art and Antiques. In 2016, she was here for a well-received talk on the formation of the Whitney Museum, and we are absolutely delighted to have her back. Tonight, she'll examine the legacy of French Impressionist painter Pierre-Auguste Renoir and introduce us to the pioneering Americans who first embraced and supported his work. Please join me in welcoming Avis Berman. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I've lectured many places, but I, this is the most beautiful room I've ever been able to speak in. And it's worth it just to come back and uh, you know, be exalted by it. Uh, I also want to thank Victoria and Elsa for all the work that they have uh, done in planning this uh, exhibition. And as I say, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I haven't given this lecture before. I kind of developed it for Boston. I think that the perfect place to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Renoir's death is Boston, the home of the first American exhibition of the uh, exhibition of Impressionism, and still the home of a rich trove of Renoirs and Monets uh, in museums and strong private collections. Less gloriously, you're the home of the mercifully short-lived Renoir Sucks movement, which was not really a movement, I think, but a, a publicity stunt that uh, died of its own irrelevance. Uh, as if we needed proof, anyone who can organize a picture of this magnitude and energy and paint it like this, as if we had just happened on it with such a variation of light and shadow, uh, with such inclusiveness and richness and abundance, does not suck. So, <laughs> um, I am convinced I cannot get too many Renoirs, the Philadelphia collector Albert C. Barnes announced in 1913, and he backed his assertion by amassing the largest collection of the work of Auguste Renoir in existence. Um, Barnes made his first purchases in 1912, and by 1942, he had bought 181 Renoirs. 178 of them are paintings, and their rich color and seductive surfaces are suffused through the galleries of the Barnes Foundation, the eponymous institution he chartered in 1922. No one surpassed Barnes in volume or veracity in the quest to possess Renoirs, but he was not alone nor the first to be consumed by that same passion. 
there were adventurous pioneering Americans who collected the great French Impressionist work and dared to espouse it 40 years before Barnes. From the formative decade of the 1880s, when Renoir was first exhibited in this country, to a mixed reception, to the late 1930s, when his name was established as an essential, essential acquisition for museums, moguls, and movie stars, Renoir's acceptance in the United States was slower than what would be supposed. What 21st century viewers see as genius, the creation of a lush world of iridescent color and flickering light, was once derided as a cacophony of bizarre color contrasts and terrifyingly bad taste. And in this lecture, I trace the trajectory of other Americans who shared Barnes's grand passion. And that trajectory, uh, as I said, started here. Uh, Renoir's work was initially shown uh, in the US in September 1883 in Boston in a group exhibition organized to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Treaty of Paris. Paul Duranwell, the, the Parisian dealer who had championed the Impressionists for more than a decade and was named the missionary of Impressionism by Renoir himself, sent 80 paintings to the show. Three of them were by Renoir, including this lambent box at the theater and one of the ultimate masterpieces of Impressionism. Uh, uh, but nothing sold. Set among, uh, they, this didn't, obviously did not sell, but because settle uh, alongside formulaic salon canvases and decorative wares, the entire group, uh, uh, Duranwell said, was badly hung and indifferently received. Nevertheless, Duranwell intended to succeed in America because in 1885, he was nearly bankrupt from, from buying so many paintings by Renoir and Claude Monet. In desperation, he accepted an invitation to participate in a large international exhibition held at the American Art Association in New York during the spring of 1886. Duranwell arrived with 264 paintings, including 38 by Renoir, such as these. The newspaper's response was positive, if puzzled, and Duranwell sold $18,000 worth of pictures. Buoyed by sales and critical plaudits, he wrote to the painter Henri Fantin Latour, do not think that Americans are savages. On the contrary, they are less ignorant, less close-minded than our French collectors. The dealer organized another Impressionist exhibition a year later, and in 1888, he opened a gallery in Manhattan, managed by his sons, Charles and Georges, and later his son, Joseph. From then on, modern French paintings were always available in New York. But well, well before Renoir and the other Impressionists were ever exhibited here, two American women were their most powerful promoters. Their proselytizing spread the news of the French avant-garde on these shores, although their converts were limited to those wealthy few who could see the artist's work in Paris. Philadelphia-born Mary Cassatt, the only American artist to be included in the Impressionist exhibitions in France, had recognized the caliber of the group from her arrival in Paris in 1874. In 1875, she persuaded her friend, the 19-year-old Louisine Elder, to purchase a pastel by Edgar Degas 
and a Monet painting, making that young woman the first American patron of Impressionism. She also convinced her older brother, Alexander Cassatt, an executive with the Pennsylvania Railroad, to buy works by her fellow Impressionists. In 1881, he bought works that she selected by Degas, Monet, and Pizarro. On his own in Paris in 1883, Alexander Cassatt acquired a head of a young girl by Renoir from Duranwell. He seems to be, have been the artist's first American buyer. Now, the second woman who influenced Impressionist collecting in America was also a native Philadelphian. Uh, after the Civil War, Sarah Tyson Hallowell forged a unique career as a freelance curator and art agent based in Chicago, yet she spent most of her time in transit between the United States and France, arranging exhibitions and finding works of art for collectors and public institutions. She presumably met Mary Cassatt in Paris, and in 1889, she and later Cassatt encouraged Hallowell's most important clients, the real estate developer, uh, I, uh, I, uh, what is, okay, I'm sorry, I'm not doing the slides very well. Okay, these, okay, these are uh, Hallowell's most important clients, the real estate developer Potter Palmer and his wife Bertha Honoré Palmer, to consider adding Impressionist canvases to their already considerable uh, collection of Barbizon and American paintings. And just as an aside, um, you see here, uh, Andrew Zorn's portrait of uh, Mrs. Potter Palmer, and I think you can see why he was such a popular portraitist in the Gilded Age. Uh, in, in <laughs> In 1889, when the Palmers were in Paris, Hallowell introduced them to Paul Duranwell, and they made their first Impressionist acquisitions, a Degas pastel and a Renoir canvas of Madame Renoir in the garden. And after uh, Duranwell's shows in New York, several bold collectors uh, joined Alexander Cassatt as Renoir buyers. Kathalina Lambert, an immigrant who became a prosperous silk manufacturer in Patterson, New Jersey, would buy at least four Renoirs, of, of which I'm showing three. He was very early. One of his first was Still Life with Flowers and Prickly Pears, which he acquired in 1888 before the Palmers. Um, the Bostonian Alexander Cochran bought a Venetian scene in July 1889. Yet neither of these collectors were imbued with the verve and drive and probably the resources of Bertha Palmer, who was determined to possess the most exciting art collection in the country. In fulfilling that quest, she became the first insatiable collector of Renoir. She was already the queen of Chicago society, and Palmer wanted only avant-garde for her sprawling picture gallery, which was upholstered in red velvet from floor to ceiling. She believed in the Impressionists and was determined to make them chic as a corollary to her certainty that collecting was a pursuit benefiting her social position. However, Unlike most socially motivated buyers, she didn't cling to the conventional. She preferred the sensational effect to a hallowed tradition precisely because she knew that whatever she did would be emulated and approved. 
The bulk of the Palmers collection was formed in 1891 to 92 when the couple traveled to Paris to publicize the, 19, the 1893 World's Columbian Exhibition in Chicago. After purchasing these two Renoirs from Duranwell in New York in March and April 1892, the Palmers went on to France in May. With Sarah Hallowell advising them, they bought 40 works from Duranwell in Paris, including 11 paintings by Renoir. The jewel of the Paris paintings was this painting, which, um, which had been shown in the 1886 Impressionist show in New York, and cost $1,750. Um, it's a study of two sisters who performed as trapeze artists, and the oranges at their feet were thrown by the audience in appreciation of their performance. Uh, Acrobats at the Cirque Fernando was Palmer's favorite painting, and it traveled with her to her various residences. Um, the Acrobats, sorry, um, along with Near the Lake, um, Luncheon at the Restaurant Fournay, and Seascape, where the Renoirs included in the 52 uh, Impressionist paintings from the Palmer Collection donated to the Art Institute of Chicago in 1922. Through this gift, the Art Institute became the first American museum to possess a rich representation in Impressionism. Moreover, its example was transformative, encouraging other Chicagoans to add to the museum's French holdings with gifts and bequests of their own. Even in death, Bertha Palmer used her social leverage to get others to fall in line. Despite the Palmer's patronage, the 1890s belonged to Monet, and Renoir's American market lagged in comparison. Not only was Monet considered the leader of the new movement, but Impressionism was primarily classified as a kind of landscape painting, and Renoir was first and foremost a painter of figures. In response to an 1893 show of the quote, extreme open air impressionists of France at Duranwell, New York, a New York Times review was not atypical. The writer praised a Monet landscape but sniffed that, quote, Renoir's figures are somewhat hard to digest. His idea of the form feminine is dumpy and commonplace, and the faces of the models are triumphs of dull vulgarity. Uh, moreover, uh, Renoir's chief patrons did not live in New York. Chicago and Boston were far more supportive, although Boston was a city known for its idolatry of Monet. Now this cultural anomaly, the abdication of New York primacy in collecting modern art, is directly traceable to Louisine Elder, the Impressionist trailblazer of the 1870s. In 1883, she married Henry O. Havemeyer, a sugar tycoon. He preferred the old masters to the modern, and it was not till 1895 that she was able to win him over to her more vanguard tastes. Thus, the Havemeyers as a couple, who were Duranwell's most important American clients, and eventually his preeminent Impressionist collectors, were not in the first wave of Impressionist stalwarts. Moreover, Louisine Havemeyer did not like Renoir's work. She ex experimented early buying a pastel of a seated girl reading in 1889, but she returned it to Duranwell in 1908. 
In March 1899, Louisine Havemeyer bought her one Renoir painting, which you see by the seashore from Duranwell, New York. It came from Kathalina Lambert, as we've seen, uh, who acquired it in April 1892, and very soon we'll begin to see the march of provenance as paintings migrate from one generation of American collectors to the next. And Havemeyer did keep this painting in the couple's collection, but she was never comfortable with it and was said to have regretted the purchase. As the American city where Impressionism was first shown, Boston had had a head start on the new art. The critic William Howe Downs wrote in 1888 that in Boston circles, it is not altogether impossible to find extremists who already avow openly their admiration for those mad outlaws, the Impressionists. But Boston collectors, as I said, traditionally skewed toward landscape paintings, so they overwhelmingly chose to own Monet's to the exclusion of his peers. With audience reservations about Renoir in Monet Mad Boston, it fell to Arthur Brewster Emmons, a mining engineer with a Harvard Law degree and, and the descendant of old Boston and Newport families to diverge from the rule. He was the first collector with Boston roots to acquire Renoir avidly. Uh, perhaps that connection, though, affected his choices because he preferred landscapes to genre portraits, genre scenes, or portraits. In 1906, on a Renoir tear, Emmons bought these three pictures from Duranwell. Uh, in the meadow had been a Palmer picture, as was the Bay of Naples, a very lively seascape that he uh, bought in 1911. Uh, Bertha Palmer frequently traded in her pictures to take profits and to upgrade her holdings. Um, during 1911, Emmons also acquired hills around the Bay of Moulin Huey in Guernsey. In less than a decade, um, Emmons's faith in Renoir was justified. In a 1920 auction of 27 canvases from his Impressionist collection, two Renoirs fetched the especially high prices of $27,000 and $28,000, reflecting the climb in the market after the artist's death in 1919. Emmons gave the Seine at Chateau to the Museum of Fine Arts in 1919. He died in 1922, and his widow led, later bequeathed uh, three Renoirs to the Metropolitan, um, as you have seen from my labels. Now, plungers into Renoir buying, like Emmons, uh, remained relatively rare during the first decade of the 20th century, and momentum in Renoir collecting shifted from a small cadre of prescient private collectors to the public sphere. Impressionist canvases were still too crude, too radical, and too recent to be purchased by most museums. The Art Institute had none until the Palmer gift in 1922. The Museum of Fine Arts purchased a Dega in 1903 Arguably, arguably the first American museum to buy an Impressionist painting. Its first Monet uh, arrived in 1906 as a gift. Uh, the MFA did not have a Renoir until 1919 when Alexander Cochran bequeathed Grand Canal Venice uh, to them and he had purchased it, as I had said, 40 years before. Uh, very likely, the Metropolitan Museum of Art was the second museum in America to buy an Impressionist painting, and it was certainly the first to buy a Renoir. Fortune favored the Metropolitan. 
an impressive figural composition, Madame Charpentier and her children became available for the first time. Georges Charpentier, the publisher of Flaubert, Zola, and Guy de Maupassant, and his wife Marguerite were loyal friends and patrons of Renoir, drumming up commissions and purchases when he most needed them. This painting uh, depicts Mar Marguerite Charpentier, two of her children, and their dog in their lavish dining room decorated in the fashionable Japanese style. This formal setting is a foil for the amplitude of Renoir's painterly means. Warm color harmonies, densely imply, applied impasto, and confident, spontaneous-looking execution. Madame Charpentier died in 1904, her husband in 1905, and their children were auctioning their collection in April 1907. At that time, the art historian and critic Roger Fry was the curator of European paintings for the Metropolitan, and the, and the mythology surrounding the acquisition of the painting credits Fry, who was justly celebrated for his understanding of modern art, for finding this uh, pearl at a great price and overcoming the bulky trustees to get it. Uh, doubtless some trustees recoiled from the picture, but the records show that the acquisition process was not instigated by Fry. On March 11, uh, 1907, Joseph Duronwell of Duronwell, New York, wrote to William Church Osborne, the museum's president, to alert him of the imminent sale. Osborne passed the letter on to Sir Caspar Purdom Clark, then the director of the museum. Clark recognized the caliber of the canvas and sent a photograph to Fry, who was then in London. On April 3, 1907, Fry wrote to Clark, as to the Renoir of which you sent me a photograph, I expect it is the kind of Renoir we ought to get. Now, even allowing for British understatement, Fry was restrained in his approval, presumably because he had not inspected the picture in person. Once he was able to examine it, his opinion soared. Fry cabled the Met. Examine Charpentier, Renoir, magnificent, museum masterpiece, attractive purchase, would be great coup, recommend bid 20,000, but hope attain much less, auction Thursday, instruct quickly. <laughs> Fry was told he could buy the painting, but not to exceed 20,000. Paul Duronwell bid for Fry and the, and the museum and got the picture for $19,680. He waived his commission. The magnitude of the purchase rippled seismically through international circles. The museum proclaimed where it stood for those unsure of the artist, for as Fry noted in an article about the, uh, about the portrait, Renoir had not yet been given his full due. Once more, Adoranwell had banked on American enlightenment, and once more he had won. The New York Herald declared, it will be one of the most interesting modern works of art acquired for the permanent collection of pictures, and the price paid for it will be adjudged none too high. And at the, at the time, it was one of the Met's most contemporary uh, paintings. Now, no one was as eager to capitalize on the incipient Renoir boom as Duranwell, New York. The gallery had never held a solo exhibition for Renoir in the 20 years that it had been open. All that changed uh, with its organizing of the artist's first one-person show in America, a retrospective that opened in November 1908. 
although the gallery always had Renoirs on hand, this exhibition of 41 paintings and works on paper ranging from 1873 to 1907 offered a much more substantial view of the artist. Recognizing that the swirl of critical popularity was building into a tidal wave, Duranwell presented Renoir shows in 1912 and 1914 to profitable effect. Uh, between 1911 and 1915, the Chicago businessman and connoisseur uh, Martin Ryerson bought six Renoirs, all of which uh, went into the uh, Art Institute of Chicago, and Robert and Hannah Marcy Edwards, uh, Boston uh, heirs, uh, Boston siblings who were heirs to a silk fortune, bought three Renoirs between 1912 and 1915, all from Duranwell, New York. Uh, in May 1912, the American critic and painter Walter Pock's laudatory essay on Renoir appeared in Scribner's magazine. When the article appeared, Pock, along with the artists Walt Kuhn and Arthur B. Davies, was deep in the process of planning the Armory Show, the sprawling international exhibition that dropped the bomb of European avant-garde on an unsuspecting American public in February 1913. Matisse, Picasso, Francis Picabia, and Marcel Duchamp were the stars, and thus the most reviled artists of the exhibition. <laughs> but from the initial meeting of the association's executive, executive committee in, in December 1911, Renoir was still modern enough to be included, and he was one of the seven French artists who were deemed mandatory for an accurate representation of the development of contemporary art. One of the show's backers was Lily P. Bliss, the daughter of a wealthy textile merchant. Uh, Bliss embraced vanguard art through her uh, friendship with Arthur B. Davies, one of the organizers. After meeting him in 1909, her collecting instincts were emboldened, and in 1913, she was a ready advocate of the new and vital. In, 19, in January 1913, uh, probably guided by Davies, she bought Renoir's Fog on Guernsey and an oil and a, a pastel by Degas from Duranwell, New York. These three works were the first building blocks of her modern collection. Bliss would go on to shape the dynamic of American culture by becoming a co-founder of the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, Renoir was represented in the New York venue by five oils. Algerian Girl was bought by Hannah Marcy Edwards some months after the painting had been returned to Duranwell from the Armory Show's last stop, which was in Boston. Its bright, fresh palette, quivering with the light of North Africa, must have affected artists who saw it as intensely as the more audacious color contrasts of Matisse. Now, the Armory Show had a, pro a profound effect on American taste, particularly that of art-conscious New Yorkers who visited it often. Between the Armory Show and the end of World War I, Renoir became expon exponentially more attractive to New York buyers who uh, began to uh, catch up with what, what Bostonians and Chicagoans had already known. Now, 
Uh, I happen to like, this is one of my favorite Renoir collectors. He's a very vital and uh, lesser known Renoir uh, enthusiast of this period was, jo was Joseph Stransky, uh, a Czechoslovakian composer engaged by the New York Philharmonic as the conductor to succeed Gustav Mahler after Mahler's death in 1911. Now, he uh, already a cultivated collector. Stransky in, uh, arrived in New York with German and Austrian pictures, but perhaps the anti-German sentiment that gripped America during World War I impelled him to change his preferences. Starting in about 1916, he investigated Impressionism and Post-Impressionism, and he would purchase at least seven Renoirs. Uh, in January 1917, he bought Woman with a Parasol and Small Child on a sunlit hillside, uh, believed to be a portrait of Camille Monet, which we will see a little later. Uh, but And that is typical for him because Stransky gravitated toward personal pictures or those steeped in associations. He bought the 1876 self-portrait in which the young man could be seen with a large, ambitious canvas. The other two uh, Stransky pictures were portraits of the commander of Renoir's regiment during the Franco-Prussian War and his wife, who smothered the artist with kindness during his time in the military. Now, Stransky was so enamored of art collecting and the art world that um, in 1923, he resigned his day job, his post at the Philharmonic, to become an art collector. I, I still find that unbelievable. Uh, anyway, uh, Stransky started by selling uh, many of the paintings in his personal collection, including uh, Madame Edouard Bernier uh, to Adolf Lewison, uh, a mining uh, magnate who um, retired from business to devote himself to art, classical music, and philanthropy. Now, Lewison had been collecting for decades, but he began to buy Impressionist paintings after World War I. Uh, he acquired a group of excellent Renoirs, all well provenance from discerning earlier collectors. Uh, through Duran Well, he was the buyer of those two costly Renoirs from the Emmons sale of 1920, Orsman at Chateau and In the Meadow. Uh, by 1921, he owned the Mussel Harvest. Now, Lewison was emblematic of the next wave of Renoir collectors, those who opted for a nicely charted path as opposed to traversing new ground. Renoir, as I said, died in December 1919, and throughout 1920, his achievements were commemorated in the American press. His prices rose, and Barnes, who owned 75 Renoirs by 1920, had had an effect as a purchaser and advocate. It was no longer pioneering to espouse Renoir. He was now a sound, if orthodox, choice. Now, this doesn't mean that splendid collections were not made, but their creators were what I would say would be tribunes and converts rather than missionaries. And in this category, uh, we would place John Taylor Spaulding, one of the MFAs and Boston in general's greatest art 
benefactors. Uh, he bequeathed the MFA 2,000 works of art, including six Renoirs. Now, Spaulding's had been in New England since the 17th century. They owned the Revere sugar refining business, which was later consolidated into the Sugar Trust with Henry Havemeyer, uh, making them all multimillionaires after the Civil War when sugar refining collapsed in the South. Um, Joseph Spaul, uh, John Spaulding and his brother William began by buying Japanese woodblock prints in 1909 and amassed what was uh, considered the greatest collection of, in the world. Uh, William got married in 1918. He and his wife moved away from Boston, and he lost interest in collecting, so the Spaulding's collection of 6,000 or so Japanese prints were uh, donated uh, to the MFA in 1921. Uh, John Spaulding was left on his own, uh, which was probably the best thing that could have happened to him and to the MFA because he turned out to be a full-on and spirited connoisseur. Uh, starting around 1920, Spaulding was collecting in four diverse areas. World War I posters, works by Boston artists, works by American artists from outside Boston, whom you, which you see, and French Impressionism. I show you these to prove that he was no slouch at judging contemporary art because the, uh, both of these were born, uh, were bought soon, at, very soon after being painted. Spaulding was a very early collector of Edward Hopper. Uh, his eclecticism speaks to how personal his collection was and so different from what he assembled with his brother, which was huge in size yet tightly focused in medium and country of origin. Now, this was the uh, picture I mentioned before owned by Joseph Stransky and thought to be Camille uh, Monet. And I saved it because it, it, it exemplifies uh, how uh, Renoir proven uh, provenances were piling up. Now, Stransky, um, who bought it from Durinwell, uh, in 1917, sold it to the uh, Washington, D.C. collector Duncan Phillips in the 1920s, who sold it back to Duranwell in 1926, where it was snapped up by Spaulding. And here are three other Renoirs all bought by Spaulding in the 1920s, which I'm sure you've all seen at the MFA. So indeed, uh, beginning with Spaulding's embrace of Impressionism, the 1920s were the splashiest decade in the annals of Renoir collecting in America, when many of the best pictures were acquired and deposited into public institutions. The Barnes Foundation, as I said at the beginning, was incorporated as an educational entity in 1922, and Barnes went forward uh, with plans for a new building in Marion, Pennsylvania, that would welcome a carefully culled public in 1925. But preceding Barnes by a year was Duncan Phillips, a banking and steel heir who opened the Phillips Memorial Gallery, which is now the Phillips Collection, quote, a museum of modern art and its sources, he said, in Washington, D.C. And from the start, the institution was a beacon in an aesthetically ossified city. Uh, but Phillips and his wife, Marjorie Acker Phillips, who was an artist herself, desired a more ambitious position for the Phillips and for Washington itself. In 1923, um, Phillips and his collection leapt from, uh, leapt from provincial iconoclast to international attraction when he made the most memorable 
uh, Renoir acquisition since the Metropolitan's buying of Madame Charpentier and her children 16 years before. Uh, Luncheon of the Boating Party is a grand scene of Parisians at leisure starring uh, Renoir's friends and family. Um, it's a, a seamless uh, melange of landscape, still life, genre painting, and portraiture. Let me just show you right here. This is Elise Chargot, uh, Renoir's future wife. Um, uh, Renoir integrates 14 figures, each of them in distinct attitudes, poses, and dress. It's a very sumptuous studio picture in the tradition of Titian and Courbet, but glittering with the illusion of plein air spontaneity. The painting was in the personal collection of Paul Duranwell, who had it installed in his dining room in Paris, and for decades he had refused all offers to sell it. But Duranwell Père died in 1922, and when Joseph Duranwell had Duncan and Marjorie Phillips to lunch at the family apartment in June 1923, they were mesmerized by the canvas and could not be dissuaded from possessing it, even at the then unheard of price of $125,000. Probably be $125 million minimal today if it were sold. Uh, their sincerity must have impressed Joseph Duranwell because he had stated publicly that he would not allow such a masterpiece to leave France unless it went to a museum. His anointment of the Phillips collection put the institution on the map, which, Phil which Duncan Phillips knew immediately. He wrote excitedly to the museum's treasurer, the Phillips Memorial Gallery is to be the possessor of one of the greatest paintings in the world. It will do more good in arousing interest and support than all the rest of our collection put together. Such a picture creates a sensation wherever it goes. As the most important Renoir canvas, as it still is, Luncheon of the Boating Party became an anchor and magnet of the Phillips collection. It had an impact on Phillips in, dividing, in defining the museum's canon of modernism. Buying the Renoir spurred him toward post-impressionism and his first purchases of Paul Cezanne and Vincent van Gogh. Now, second only to Barnes and appetite and commitment as devotees of Renoir were Robert Sterling Clark and his wife, Francine Clary Clark, who bought 39 works between 1916 and 1951. Sterling Clark, as he was known, was an heir to the singer's sewing machine fortune. After a career as a soldier and explorer, he settled in Paris in 1910, buying a townhouse that he proceeded to decorate with old master paintings. In the same year, he met Francine Clary, an actress in the Comédie Française, and they became lovers. Although he lived in Paris, it took a visit to New York in late 1916 to make Clark a Renoir owner. Catalina Lambert had suffered several years of business losses and had to sell his collection. The dealer, Stevenson Scott, bid 16200 for woman crocheting at Lambert's auction in February and charged Clark 20000 for it in December. In 1919, Clark and Clary were married and they moved to the United States permanently in June 1920 to New York. Now, Sterling Clark 
could, excuse me, I don't, I want to keep that there. Uh, Sterling Clark could afford any work of art he wished, but he was mindful that the cost of art had risen. There was more competition for Renoir's than in 1916, but they were still a fraction of old master prices. Sterling and Francine Clark were increasingly attracted to 19th century artists, and Renoir was their favorite. Sterling Clark did the buying, but no purchase was final without his wife's approval. He trusted her judgment much more than any, um, any um, art expert. Uh, in 1922, um, Sterling Clark brought uh, one Renoir in Paris from Durandwell in, and, in Paris, and then another from the New York branch, which began a lifelong relationship with the gallery. Of the 39 Renoirs the Clarks acquired, 28 of them were from Durandwell. Eventually, Clark wangled his own storeroom in Durandwell's New York building. Um, Clark visited 57th Street nearly every single day to compare pictures and pick up gossip of the trade. So he wielded insider knowledge as well as memory and judgment when he negotiated. As Herbert Elfers, a director of Durand-Royal, New York, told another dealer, no one sold Clark pictures, he bought them. Uh, now, Clark uh, purchased seven Renoirs between 1922 and 1930, including these four. Um, blonde Bather and a box at the theater cost 80000 and and 100000 uh, respectively. So you see in the 20s, the market really was going up. But when uh, prices uh, plummeted during the Depression, he bought six Renoirs in 1933 alone. And here are some Renoirs uh, acquired in the 1930s. Now, Clark was exacting in his choices. His favorite period of Renoir was 1880 to 1882, and he rarely ventured beyond any work painted after 1890, although he would make exceptions for uh, such paintings as the incisive self-portrait of Renoir that you see. He believed that he had a better collection of Renoir than, Bar uh, of Renoir than Barnes because, in his opinion, the latter bought too many later and often poorly executed works, a benighted consequence of desiring examples from all phases of the artist's oeuvre. Nor did Clark like uh, Barnes's bombastic personality uh, or penchant for publicity. In contrast, Clark always lent anonymously and only invited close friends to see what he had, but he nourished a vision of philanthropy and legacy. In the late 1940s, uh, Clark uh, plotted to establish a museum that would make the couple's entire collection available to the public. He lived to see the opening of the Francine and Sterling Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts on May 17, 1955. It became and remains an intellectual and aesthetic ornament of the state and the region. Now, along with the Clarks, the other unstoppable collecting couple of the 1920s were Chester and Maud Dale. Chester Dale was a streetwise financier who had begun working on Wall Street at age 15 and taught himself how to trade and invest by watching what his bosses did. At 35, Dale was rich enough to retire from formal business, so he spent his time watching over his own money and ferreting out works of art. In 1911, he uh, married the painter Maud Murray Thompson, and it was she who steered him into art. 
Starting in 1918, the couple bought American paintings, but in December 1925, Dale intrepidly acquired, acquired Matisse's The Plumed Hat. When Maud Dale realized that her husband had the makings of a, a serious collector in imagination as well as in purchasing power, she suggested that he systematically begin collecting French 19th century artists and their antecedents. Um, Dale bought his first Renoir in 1926, and his taste clearly was for female beauty and the female form. At one point, he owned 12 Renoirs, but only nine originally owned by him are in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, where he left his collection after tantalizing the Met, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and the Art Institute of Chicago with it for years. Uh, Dale threw himself into art with the same shrewdness he had brought, bought, brought to the stock market. He bought a majority share in a Paris gallery so the firm could not bid against him, and he exploited cash-hungry dealers during the Depression. Um, in 1933, the shimmering and sexy odalisque was his, and in 1931, he purchased the canvas that remains among the most popular paintings in the National Gallery, the girl with watering can. And I'm just going to go back to this odalisque because I think it's a fantastic painting. Um, now, despite the gulf in social position between the patrician Sterling Clark and the very rough-hewn Dale, the two were friendly competitors who enjoyed each other's company. They shared the same opinion about Renoir, both preferring paintings of the 1870s and 1880s to later works, although Dale, whose taste also encompassed Picasso, Matisse, Braque, Modigliani, and Soutine, was far less conservative than Clark. Clark wrote about the fun of talking with Dale, exulting two crazy old picture collectors admiring each other's pictures and actually saying so. Now, it's no surprise that Clark and Dale abhorred Renoir's late work. Every major American collector of Renoir uh, uh, thought the same then, with the prominent um, exception of Barnes. Renoir had grown impatient with the dissolving forms of Impressionism, and he jettisoned them for a more classical approach, emphasizing structure, mass, and volume. In the 20th century, his representations of contemporary life gave way to female nudes and bathers in soft, unspecific environments, which were not greeted with approval. Mary Cassatt famously visited Renoir in 1913 and was aghast at his paintings of, quote, enormously fat red women with very small heads. <laughs> Yet Barnes's enthusiasm was validated by both Picasso and Matisse, who venerated the late nudes and collected them. Matisse described this very late painting of bathers as some of the loveliest nudes ever painted. But theirs was a lonely conviction, and most buyers were not persuaded, which is why so few late Renoirs were to be found in American collections formed in the opening decades of the 20th century. Now, by the 1930s, Impressionism and Renoir were staples of the East Coast and staples of Midwest collections, but they were less common in California. The first significant uh, Impressionist collection in, in Los Angeles was not 
until the 19, early 1930s, and the first significant collector was the actor Edward G. Robinson. Uh, born Emanuel Goldenberg in Bucharest, Romania, Robinson arrived in New York at age 10 and grew up in poverty on the Lower East Side. Despite this, he was always enchanted by art and the idea of collecting. As an aspiring stage actor, he made friends with New York artists and bought their work when he could afford it. His passion was so obvious that it endeared him to more seasoned collectors. When he was a young man, he was invited to visit the Lewison collection. I feasted my eye, Robinson recalled, and I think I trained it. On his first trip west, when Hollywood called, he stopped in Chicago and immersed himself in the collections of the Art Institute. After he became a star with Little Caesar in 1931, it dawned on him that he was earning enough money to buy the modern French art that he craved. I mean, and he was one of the few people making money during the Depression when prices had gone down. And he inaugurated his uh, collection uh, in 1933 with two Renoirs. One of them uh, was this 1910 nude, so he had no misgivings um, about the late work. The other one, the other one may have been this uh, cityscape. Um, and I'm sorry about the black and white reproduction, uh, but this is in a private collection um, and the owner does not let his work be reproduced. Um, as the 30s wore on, Robinson frequented galleries in New York London and Paris. Uh, he bought Girl with Pink Feather while in London in 1936 um, making a movie and he eventually owned five Renoirs. Uh, joking that he made movies so he could keep buying the pictures that, quote, collected him, Robinson fit easily into the Freemasonry of connoisseurs in New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia. He was invited by Barnes and Chester Dale to see their collections, but in Hollywood, he was sui generis. Now, Robinson as well as Lewison and Phillips, along with museums uh, drawing from the Palmer, uh, Emmons, Havemeyer, and Ryerson collections lent to a 1937 Renoir exhibition organized by the Met. Constituted solely of works from American collections, it was such a triumph that the critic Henry McBride, in an extensive article um, on the exhibition and its lenders, noted that all official uncertainty in regard to the work of Renoir had completely dissipated. Renoir's popularity did not diminish among American collectors of modern art until after World War II, when abstract expressionism displaced traditional figurative uh, painting, and Monet was hailed as one of the new movement's progenitors. Those who were unperturbed by such trends would have sided instead with Barnes's friend and mentor, the critic Leo Stein, when he wrote, Renoir lovers are insatiable. Collectors of his pictures have them by the scores and find that each accession adds not itself alone, but gives addition also to the life of all the others. Thank you.